Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. is with me and so um we're gonna forego an opening segment of me just talking to myself or with myself or with you and (laughs) instead we're going to go ahead and be sure that peter overhears what we're saying in the opening segment so that i can uh call upon him to catalog his comfort food uh, when we come back from the first little break. So, Peter, are you ready? I, I think I am ready, though. You're no, using you the, couldn't possibly be ready. Well, it's but you're not, using food you just, as if it was singular, as if I couldn't have more just, than, than no, one you comfort can have food. A whole, you can have a whole list of comfort foods. It's being completely redesigned in the COVID-19 era, so I just need to warn you of that in advance. I'm reading today from a news headline that says Brooklyn Pizza Shop is offering, quote, comforting words for a dollar on its delivery menu. So sometimes all you need is an encouraging word from a stranger and all you have to do to get it is pay a buck. So uh, if you want a little comfort with your pepperoni, so like I want a, what is your favorite pizza? That's going to be one of the questions here that I'm going to tee you up for. Uh, my favorite pizza would have sausage, but not sausage that has a lot of fennel in it, because then I think that it tastes like licorice, and who wants a licorice pizza? Agreed. So uh, I want sausage on my pizza, but I also want mushrooms, onions, fresh tomatoes. I don't really want those overcooked. Uh, I like the cheese, but I like for it to be like a variety of cheese, not just too much mozzarella or provolone. Um, and let's see, and some green pepper. No olives, nothing that has been brined. No, yeah, no fruit. Although now people are going to say that technically tomato is a fruit. So there you go. Um, that's Carmen's favorite pizza. Oh, and I don't want a crust that is too thick, also not too thin. There you go. I am the Goldilocks. I was gonna, how, how long does it take you to order a pizza, Carmen? I mean, well, now the... I just call Paul's Pizza. I yeah. know Paul Perot is now thinking to himself, Carmen's go-to pizza place is called Paul's. I'm not delivering that far. Paul's, no, they don't deliver either. I have to go and get it. Uh, but I go to Paul's Pizza pa- Palace in White Bluff, and I just now order the Carmen because it's too complicated <laughs> to do anything else. And it comes with this little side of garlic butter. Which is really good for dipping the crust, which we call the bones. So once you arrive at the bones, what are you going to dip it in? Some people do like ranch dressing or other people don't eat it, which I don't know why. But anyway, there you go. Wood-fired sausage, uh, onion, green pepper, tomato, mushroom, extra cheese, hand-tossed crust. There you go. Carmen, I I, I want to say that that I, you describing that is is an extremely solid choice. I mean, Paul and I we have words of affirmation. You're not even paying us a dollar for the tip, which I know is part of the story. We have words of affirmation for you, Carmen. You are doing very well. Your lack of fennel in the sausage is actually right? a critical move in that moment because that, that can is. overpower the rest of the flavor of the pizza, and then you end up with a fennel yeah. pizza, and nobody wants that. Yeah, and I forego the pepperoni because I just think it's too greasy. It's not that I dislike right. pepperoni. I like pepperoni like in a good sub, like in a good Italian sub. 
but I don't like it on a pizza because it's just it's so greasy. Yeah, you got to sop it up with the paper towels before you eat it. That's totally, yeah, yeah, it's the only way to yes. do that. Yeah. Go for uh, the garlic butter dipping in the end. All right, comfort words. Uh, words of comfort. Comfort, comfort, oh my people is the verse of scripture that came to mind. That would be Carmen's attempt to make a story about pizza in the Bronx relevant to the Christian worldview. Peter Kapsner and I will be right back to talk about comfort and other things. Stay tuned. All right, Peter Kapster and I are now going to launch into, well, actually, we're just going to continue a conversation that we were already in. It is a conversation about comfort. Um, People do need to be comforted. There's a lot of distress, not only in the world right now, but just in the world in general. Um, And so, Peter, talk with us about um, what comforts you, because, see, I'm I'm really not a words of affirmation person. So words of comfort is only going to go so far with me, but I think it's inappropriate to, like, go in for a hug with my pizza (laughs) delivery person. So I'm feeling like— Right. Yes. So I'm feeling like the uh, the Christian conversation here about how we offer comfort to one another and in the midst of the pandemic is a good one to have. Yeah. You know, it actually, uh, kidding aside, it is. I think it's really important because many of us, understandably so, are uh, pretty disturbed and, and our lives have been significantly disrupted. And to to be comforted is to basically say something along the lines of even in the circumstances of today, all will be well. And as we were talking about these different things around comfort and and by the way, you, you ripped on olives when it came to be being put Ooh. on a pizza. No, green Ooh. and black olives with mm. mushrooms and onions. Oh, my gosh. So, the, the crust see, I agree with, pizza, the butter, the whole thing. But so there's a pe- that is a pizza that on like a buffet line. That is a, that is safe because I'm not touching that. Let's <laughs> see. Well, it, you know, but your sophisticated palate related to pizzas, it, it does have room, um, you know, to grow in, into the into those <laughs> fruits and, ve- and vegetables. But back to comfort, you know, when you were talking about this, too, it, it called to mind in the 14th century, there was um, a Christian mystic woman named Julian of Norwich. And some of our, our I listeners. I love her. Right. I mean, and, and she came, she was ministering during the time of the plague. And when everybody was sort of understandably hunkered down in their villages and in their homes and their huts, wherever they lived. She decided to emerge, not because she was being willy-nilly, not because she was being foolish, but she came out uh, of her sort of bunkered-down location, and, be, and she began to minister in all the different villages. And, and here was her famous line. She would say, all will be well, all will be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And she wasn't uh, being starry-eyed or trying to ignore the fact that there was a significant plague that was uh, going on all throughout Europe. She was saying that even in the midst of the plague, because she is part of a kingdom that knows no end, all things ultimately will be well. There may be this momentary and very significant affliction going on, but it is temporary compared to the eternal weight of glory. And that was her message. And I think, you know, you and I and Paul and our listeners, we're not going to walk around maybe saying all will be well, all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. But I think we can think about what does it mean to represent the fact that even though we die, yet we live, even though things are really troubling in the world around us, we're part of something different and something bigger. And how can we speak words of comfort from that place uh, to people around us? Did you know that the the sevenfold division of the Lord's Prayer um, is understood to have been actually written down for the first time by Julian of Norwich? I did not know that. She really had a significant impact, did she not? Yeah. um, So she... um, 
uh, you know, she wrote in a place, you know, that we now call the Norwich Castle. And it's there that uh, this division uh, of the seven parts of the prayer um, are like first known to have been written down. It, it, anyway, it just I, I find her fascinating. Um, Simone Weil would be another one. Um, who else do I who do I look back to? And I think to myself, those women were just like rock stars of their era. Teresa of Avila. Oh, for sure. I mean, yes. Praying, praying, um, praying not only for our own comfort, but for the comfort of others. That is that's a spiritual discipline in which we could all engage every single day in the midst of the great divisions and divisiveness that we experience. Praying comfort over one another, being people of encouragement, coming alongside other people, um, and and bearing part of the load. Psalm twenty three comes to mind. We talk about comfort. Um, certainly, uh, words of the prophets, particularly maybe Isaiah, but there are there are passages throughout Scripture where there is real comfort that comes to God's people through God's word. Uh, and that's a ministry that every single Christian can engage in today. Yeah, it really is. And what you know, what's interesting too about uh, some of the the comfort that was offered by these men and women that you referenced, Carmen, is that many of them ministered before the Bible was even widely circulated. And it didn't mean that they didn't have a chance to read the Bible, but uh, they they did. But you don't have to be you know, trained with fancy letters. You don't need to get exegetically into the biblical text. You just simply need to to work with God uh, in terms of discerning the spirit of the day and bring those words of comfort in the midst of them. Anybody can do it. And, and I think that is what's needed more than anything else in the midst of all of this disruption. Because I think a lot of us, and myself included, I'll, I'll put myself in this category, that you sort of begin to pursue idols of different kinds and you don't really know it. And And what I mean by that is that an idol is something you look to to bring a sense of wholeness and peace in your life and and uh, and as a substitution for who God is and those idols are many they are all around us in our culture today whether it be money or relationships or fame or power or whatever that looks like and it, how subtle it is that my heart becomes oriented towards those things in a way that I need to have them in order to feel whole and what something like a global disruption can do like this with the virus is as brutal as it is, and it is very brutal on so many different people, it also can reveal the fact that, wait a second, all of these things that I thought were going to give me a sense of peace and wholeness, now they've been disrupted or eliminated from my life altogether, and they don't stand. It's like the idols are being knocked over left and right that maybe we've been pursuing as a culture and, and as people for so long. So can we lift our eyes back towards the heavens? Can we see where our actual help and hope comes from? And in so doing, can we then turn and bring the comfort of those heavens to the people around us? That's what it means to be an ambassador of reconciliation and to shine the, the light of God's kingdom in this world. So, Peter, before we uh, take a very brief break, I want to walk off of this segment with some uh, just some verses of comfort from the Word of God. So from Psalm 30, verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Certainly the 23rd Psalm, but also here, Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The verse I referred to earlier from Isaiah 40, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. The words of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus goes on to say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Uh, Paul, the words of Paul um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort who comforts us all in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God.
Mm. You're listening to Mornings with Car- Carmen. Peter Capster and I will be right back. Okay, clearly we're going to have to circle back around to the conversation uh, about food with Peter Kapsner because we're going to have to have an evaluation of Halloween candy at some point. And And apparently there's a raging debate between us about (laughs) how much stuffing there should be in an Oreo. I'm a little scandalized by what you just told me off air right now, Carmen. Yeah, well, we're going to have to talk about that some other time because we have too many headlines to talk about today. So I am talking with Peter Kapsner. So, Peter, in the uh, in the last half hour, Kathy Branzell, who heads up the National Day of Prayer Task Force, said something that I took the time to write down, which doesn't often happen when you're on. So um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. OK, that's my love so, language, by the way. But, yes, continue. She said this. She said this. And I thought I'm writing that down and I'm going to start saying it out loud over and over again. She said the world seeks to redefine what God has designed. Mm. The world seeks to redefine what God has designed. Your your comments about idolatry, I thought, fit right into that. But here are some headlines that I am reading where, in fact, uh, the world is doing exactly what Kathy said. So we have a headline out of Canada. Gay man and straight woman can form a conjugal relationship, so says a Canadian court. So there's one headline for you. Mm. I got four headlines uh, following on the heels of that that are all related to trans-identified people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is in uh, California. Governor Newsom signs law allowing transgender inmates to be placed in prison uh, according to their own preferred gender identity. Um, and then we've got feminists speaking out against the trans movement because uh, they see uh, trans-identified people as a threat to women. Um, the United Kingdom, while it is moving forward with plans to allow trans-identifying people to change their official legal designation without medical diagnosis, um, also has a headline that reads, the UK Department of Education issues guidance against born in the wrong body, gender lessons in school. Wow. And then um, here's one more. Uh, this one's from NBC News. I just pulled this one yesterday. A transgender man, which just as soon as you say that, I have a problem with the headline. So let's just say trans-identifying individual files pregnancy discrimination lawsuit against Amazon, claiming he was harassed and denied a promotion with the online giant after telling his boss, after telling his boss he was pregnant, a sentence that would be unrecognizable and meaningless in any former time. Talk with us about how the world seeks to redefine God's design. Yeah, that's quite a quote from Kathy uh, on that piece of it. And I think she in that quote and you with your headlines are are driving right into the heart of Genesis 3, where after this beautiful creation story ends at the end of Genesis 2, we see that the serpent shows up in this Garden of Eden and and speaks doubt into the minds of, of the man and the woman that are standing there. And that doubt really is, can God be trusted? Did God really say, does God really have your back related to the the unfolding of creation that now you are stewarding? Because mm, I'm not sure I think God is holding out on you. And then in introducing them or, or standing alongside of them at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the midst of their doubt about who God is and, and who they are related to God, they look up at this tree and what does the serpent say? Actually, if you eat of this tree, you will know good and evil. You will be like God you will know good and evil for yourself. And I think, Carmen, we, we could really uh, swim around in that passage for quite some period of time because it strikes at the heart of all of those headlines that you read where we, we stop trusting God, doubt gets introduced, 
Uh, and by the way, the alleviation of doubt is never further understanding. The alleviation of doubt is always greater trust uh, in the midst of the doubt. And so in, in their lack of trust, they look up at this fruit that they want to bear instead. And that fruit is to untether from God and to find for themselves what is good and evil. We can decide moving forward anything and related to gender and sexuality, we will decide for ourselves. And on all of those headlines that you read really speak of a, of a Genesis 3 life, of a life untethered from God. We don't believe that the design uh, of marriage and the design of the one flesh covenant is actually what is good for us. We will decide for ourselves what is good for us. And in that untethering, of course, things go completely haywire. And that's what we see in some of these headlines. People continue to try to pursue uh, that, that sense of wholeness and peace in their life. But once we untether from God, we turn towards the things of this earth in order to find that wholeness and peace. And one of the great deceits that then the serpent, that Satan, the father of all lies, begins to offer is that if you say yes to this way of life, you will get the wholeness that you want, you know, an untethered life. And so we say yes to it and we decide, well, okay, we must be a a gay man to marry a a straight woman and we'll have children together. That's going to bring wholeness and peace. And then at the end of the day, it doesn't. So then we've got to keep trying and trying and trying to define for ourselves what's going to bring peace. And we have a world that is doing that day in and day out. It's what it means to live in, in a fallen kind of situation, untethered from God. And so there's such a difference, isn't there, between the civil unions that a state might sanction and say is okay, or, or changing your gender that the, the state may sanction and say it's okay. The state is still a product of the reality of this world. And there's only one kingdom where we can truly find that hope and peace. And, and the answer is to lean into that kingdom and trust, not try to define for ourselves what is good moving forward. Yeah, the attempt to define goodness apart from God or to imagine that the way God created it is not good um, suggests that I don't trust the creator. Right. And when I when you say Genesis three, you know, like I say Romans one for sure. I'm just like looking at the unfolding evidence of a life um, untethered from God, as you've described it. And a person who is seeking to live according to their own autonomous desires versus living in joyful, willing submission to the authority of a really good God. I mean, a really good God. I, and and that's the that is I mean, if people want to know what separates people in the world today, it is this. It is whether or not a person is operating according to their own autonomous desires or a person is living in a joyful, willing submission to uh, the authority of a very good God. It's really well said, Carmen. And, and I think where, where I very much sympathize with people is that the serpent is speaking doubt all day long in various forms. It is, it, various forms. It is the primary way of Satan to invite us to untether because the doubt at its heart is deceit about who God is and who we are. But uh, where I sympathize is sometimes people say, well, you know, I went to a church and it was filled with power plays and strife and division, or this pastor fell from grace or whatever. So Christianity can't possibly be true because of that. And and that's some of the, the rippling impacts and the danger when we as Christians 
uh, are walking in ways that are completely antithetical to God's kingdom together, as opposed to be in a community that is defined by our love or other centeredness with one another. Sometimes we are defined by strife and division, and, and it gets confusing then about who God is, but it's such an invitation to us, right? Because we really do have the hope. We really do have the message. We really do have the comfort that you described earlier as provided by God in his kingdom. And so can we learn to keep walking and growing and developing in that light to shine it to a world that really has bought into the doubt uh, to be able to say, wait a second, God really is good. God really does have your back in the midst of the absences of this world. God really will pull you through to the end. All will be well. All manner of things will be well. To communicate that message, I think, is going to be increasingly important in the generations ahead. All right, Peter, you and I have to leave it right there. I do love our listeners, though, who are now communicating via text and email their favorite pizzas. It's olives. I'm sure it's foods. olives. I mean, it has to I be I don't know. If you can have the whole olive crowd. They're all yours. Those <laughs> are... take them. <laughs> what are we calling them? The Capsner what? Well, well, we need a name for them because I will take them all into the fold. We are seen as outcasts so often, Carmen, but we will form our own beautiful community, me and the olive That's lovers. Right. We really will. Capsner gets all the olive lovers. <laughs> there you go. Um, I love the olive tree, though, I'll, I'll just and the olive brand and all of that. Okay, so don't at me. All right. Hey, Peter Kapsner, always fun, always a delight, always enriching. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Carmen. We'll be right back. All right. You know and love Russell Moore. He's up with me next. He has a brand new book, The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. And yes, I have copies to give away. If you're interested, text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. This is Max Lakeva. On that particular day at the Pool of Bethesda, Jesus was drawn to the main character of this miracle. John chapter 5, verses 5 through 7 read like this. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. What an odd question to ask a sick person. Why would Jesus pose such a question? The man was 38 years as an invalid. The duration of the condition prompted Jesus to ask, would you like to get well? Getting well means getting up, getting a job, getting on with life. Do you really want to be healed? That's the question Jesus asked then. That's the question Jesus asks all of us. Do you want to get well? Remember, my friend, you are never alone. Well, welcome back. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Russell Moore. He is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, which maybe we're going to start calling the Great Commission Convention. I don't know. We might talk about that. It's the nation's largest Protestant denomination. Uh, You guys know Dr. Moore. We have had him on before. We've talked about Onward, one of my favorite books, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. He's also the author of The Storm-Tossed Family and Adopted for Life, The Priority of Adoption for Christian Families and Churches. You can find him at the ERLC. You can also uh, find what we're talking about today, which is his new book from B&H Publishing. Dr. Moore, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Great to be with you, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's always great to have you. The new book is The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. Um, even in just reading the title, I'm I'm just recognizing we are living in a period of time when it it 
it feels different than it's ever felt before, and it feels yeah. a little ominous. So talk a little bit about the status of things, and then we're going to invite everybody to have the courage to stand. You know, I, what's interesting to me is in in watching sort of the pandemic and everything else that's been going on uh, over the last year is seeing the way that there is, as you say, this sort of ominous uh, uh, feeling, but also the different ways that people respond to that. I mean, I, I'm just looking at that with my own friends and family. And so you have some people who respond to fear by just sort of distracting themselves from it and, and trying to sort of laugh it off and, and wave it off. And then other people who are uh, sort of withdrawing and uh, isolating. And then other people who are expressing it in terms of just getting into all sorts of uh, interpersonal fights with each other and, and what have you. So the, the fear kind of manifests itself in different ways with different people, which is, of course, what we see all the time, regardless of a big, big global event or series of events as, as we have right now, this just brings it into really sharp, uh, sharp contrast. Well, when you talk about in The Courage to Stand, how we live in the midst of a fearful world or a fearful time, and how then we as Christians are called to respond in the midst of that, you know, I'm not going to run away and I'm not going to put my head in the sand. So mm -hmm. what am I called to do as a Christian in in a time like this? Well, I think one of the things that we, we often want to do is to have um, a sort of immediate resolution to whatever it is that we're we're afraid of, uh, whether mm. that's something big, you know, a, a, a cancer diagnosis or a spider or yeah, or if it's just you know, you're starting in a new school or you're, you're starting in a new job and you have the, the fear of the future. Often what we want is to say, I just want to know uh, w what's about to happen to know that I can do it. And that's, of course, mm. not the way that that life works. And I, I think one of the reasons that we, we probably have a, a difficult time dealing with fear is I think we think that God and I know we don't think this cognitively, but I think we think this at the heart level often, that God is really present with us in these triumphant feeling moments, and that uh, God is somehow absent from us in those uh, moments when we feel weak and vulnerable and uh, afraid. And that's what I think is, is biblically just skewed, not right. Well, and that is really the turn I feel like the book takes, right? So I'm recognizing that I'm going to fear. The yeah. question is, am I also going to recognize that right then I have a choice of how I face the fear? Do I recognize that I have right. a, a, a choice? And then do I actually choose that which is most empowering, which is to recognize I'm not in it by myself, I'm not in it for myself, and God actually has it? Yeah, and I think, I think part of that is recognizing you know, when we say that you have a choice at that moment, um, what what I don't mean is you have a choice to do this list of things or to do mm -hmm. that list of things, because I think the picture that we see in, in Scripture, I mean, what, what brought about this book is reflecting on uh, the prophet Elijah, who, of course, is a, a major figure uh, throughout the Bible, even though he physically is only present in, in a few chapters, but he's, he's everywhere referenced uh, throughout the Bible and with the Old and New Testaments. 
And uh, one of the things that Elijah was always sort of an intimidating figure to me because he seemed to be so powerful because I would think of him in that classic moment up on Mount Carmel when he's debating with the priests of Baal and he says, uh, and he says, you call to your God and I'll call to mine and we'll see who answers. And God, of course, answers by fire. And I realize that's sort of the kind of life that I want, which is uh, to sort of have immediate verification. God's with me. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm okay. Uh, you know, all of those things. But that's not where the Elijah story goes. The Elijah story then takes him immediately out into the desert and out into the wilderness. And that's where uh, God really is uh, shaping and forming him and, and, and present in a unique way. And I, I think what you see in that is exactly what Jesus has told us is true for us as Christians, which is you, you carry the cross and as you carry the cross, what can seem to you to be random and chaotic and, and out of your control uh, is often God shaping you and forming you into the image of Christ. And so sometimes I think when fear comes in and our response is, I don't know how this ends. I don't know where this is going. I think the answer to that is to say, and I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I'm going to entrust this to God. I'm talking with Dr. Russell Moore. We're talking about his new book, The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. We do have complimentary copies to give away today if you would like to enter the drawing. I mean, it's the it's the first day you can get the book, so uh, it's exciting to have some to pass along to you. Just text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484, and Dr. Moore and I will be right back. This is amazing Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am thrilled to continue my conversation with Dr. Russell Moore, uh, among other things, the author of The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. Just a reminder that you can enter the drawing for the complimentary copies of the book we have available today by texting the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Um, Dr. Moore, let's talk about um, the movement of the book, Freedom Through Judgment. Um, well, there, every chapter is a chapter on courage. So courage and fear, courage and shame, courage and integrity, courage and vulnerability, courage and community. That one is connected through loneliness. And then the one I really want to spend a moment on, because I think that for many, many um, Christians in churches across the country today, chapter seven is going to be really important. Courage and justice, righteousness through irrelevance. Uh, and mm -hmm. then uh, chapter eight, which is cure, courage and the future, meaning through mystery. So I want to talk about the nightlight in the hallway, but I don't want to go there yet. So let's talk <laughs> okay. about huh, um, let's talk about chapter seven. Talk about the church that you feature sort of at the beginning of the chapter. Well, at the at the beginning of that chapter, I'm reflecting on a church that um, that I knew through a friend that had been in a suburban uh, city in the South during the era of Jim Crow. And uh, right down the, the street from them is where the, the bombing happened that killed uh, four little girls uh, going to Sunday school. And, of course, you had, uh, you had all of the, the wreckage going on in that city in Jim Crow. And this church didn't say anything about it because 
they thought, you know, we want to we want to be able to minister to our people. We don't want to weigh into controversial things and what have you. And then over time, uh, their community changed. What had been this upper class white neighborhood became a, a majority African American neighborhood, and then the church was faced with existential survival, and they wanted to uh, reach out to their community. And uh, somebody at the church was complaining to a friend of mine and said, "You know, that this we we do everything we can to try to reach this community, and uh, none of them will will pay attention to us." And and my friend said, "Well." It's because they saw what it is that you really value, uh, and what you really value is your existence as a church and, and the maintenance of your institution, and that's why you were willing uh, not to speak up for what was right in the 1960s. And so how are they going, then going to listen to you now? Now, it's it's really easy to sort of look back and to see that taking place with somebody else, but actually— that's what's going on in all of our lives all the time, and not just in sort of big uh, questions like that. It's it's what happens in the workplace when uh, you know there, there's someone in the workplace that that everyone else kind of marginalizes and and gossips about, and someone thinks I don't want to be seen with that person because that that will take some of my cachet away. I mean, we we make those decisions every day in terms of whether we're going to do what's right or whether we're going to do exactly the sort of mentality that, that happened in this lack of, of justice in this church and a lot of churches like it at the time, which is if I do this and if I stand for what's right, then I'm not going to still be here later on. And so you're, you're able to sort of think that through. And so that, that's sort of the calculation that a college student is making when saying, am I going to follow Christ, which is going to make me a little strange here? Am I going to uh, stand by the things that, that I believe that Jesus has handed to me or not? I mean, those decisions take place all the time in our lives. So I want to talk about the nightlight in the hallway. Um, the youngest person in your house is eight. You don't have yeah. over 80-year-olds living with you. So it's right. possible that the need for a nightlight in the hallway, um, you know, that you're living in the in the time of life when maybe a nightlight is not required. But that's actually right. not what this is about. So talk with us about the nightlight in the hallway. I have a, a, a nightlight that uh, it, it's actually uh, bigger than your typical nightlight that you think about. But it's it's a um, it's a wardrobe. Uh, that opens up and it has Lucy from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, going into the wardrobe with the lamppost uh, in front of her and the light sort of comes out of the lamppost. And I keep that in the house to remind me all the time of how God used that book uh, and that story in my life because just by, you know, you could say an accident, of uh, I, I don't think it's an accident, but an, an accident. Uh, I was really embedded in those Narnia stories as a really, really small child, and resonated with them. Uh, I mean, I, I was sort of imaginatively involved in those stories in my mind, and so when I went through this really, really difficult uh, crisis of faith as a fifteen-year-old, I recognized the name C.S. Lewis 
on the spine of a book in a bookstore, Mere Christianity, and I bought it and and took it home. And that's what the Lord used really to uh, to firm me up uh, in my faith. And it, it wasn't because of the arguments in Mere Christianity, although those are important. But my problem really wasn't, oh, I don't intellectually see how these things can be. My problem was something else. My problem was, is Christianity really just something else? Is it is it just a means to an end uh, where, where people are trying to control us with this stuff? And C.S. Lewis came through and he didn't market to me. He didn't try to sell anything to me. Just the tone of voice from this dead man in this book. Uh, you could tell he was bearing witness to something. He was He was bringing, if you think of John 1, uh, John the Baptist, he was not that light, but he was bearing witness to the light. And so that nightlight sort of reminds me that um, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a mystery that's that's somewhat known to us, but is just beyond our full knowing. That is this that is this light to which we continue to move, by which we walk. It's also the voice that's calling us homeward. It feels yeah. like this book, is about standing now with a posture always toward home, which is not here, and always yeah. responsive to a voice that's calling us forward. That's right. And I think that what the Scripture tells us is that we we get the light that we need, and we follow the voice that we need, but we don't have the GPS. Uh, mm. And I think that's what we want. Uh, we we want to know, and and I remember I was having a, a difficult time one time, at, with with something that was going on, and I said to this older man, uh, who's really wise, I said, you know, I could really handle this if I just knew exactly how it was all going to turn out. And he laughed and said, well, of course, uh, any anybody could, but that's not the way that life works. It's, yay, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but thou art with me. That, that's what we need. And I think that sense of pilgrimage, it's unsettling uh, because we really do want to plan our lives out in detail in a way that can protect us from any possibility of, of being hurt or of failing, you know, all of those sorts of things. But, but that's not what the gospel is calling us to. It's calling us to something else that reorders all those priorities. And that's a good thing. It just doesn't seem to be a good thing at the time. The book is The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. The author is Russell Moore. If you're not familiar um, with Dr. Moore, he has a weekly podcast called Signposts that I would highly recommend to you. Also encourage you to check out what he's doing at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. They are at ERLC. Uh-oh, Russell, what's the end of the URL? ERLC. I can type it in. ERLC.com. Um, you can also uh, text the word book right now to 877-933-2484. I will enter you into the drawing for one of the complimentary copies of the book that we have today, The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. Uh, for those of you who don't know um, Dr. Moore, I, I'm probably older than he is, but uh, he is one of the people that I know today in active ministry. Um, I want to be like him when I grow up whatever that means. Seriously, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me, Carmen. I love this show and and, uh, press on. Well, it's mutual. All right, we'll be right back. 
All right, so we have about a minute here for me to bring you up to speed on a developing story while we have been on air. Uh, here's the state of play in terms of the debates. The Commission on Presidential Debates announced this morning that uh, they would have the next presidential a, a debate in a virtual format, uh, that the candidates would appear from separate remote locations. The Biden campaign immediately uh, issued a statement saying they were looking forward to that. Joe Biden, quote, looks forward to speaking directly to the American people. President Trump then went on Fox News uh, this morning with Maria um, Bartiroma and said, uh, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Quote, I'm not going to waste my time on a virtual debate. That's actually not what debating is about. So it's ridiculous. And then the Trump campaign confirmed that, in fact, yeah, we're not doing that. We're going to have a rally instead. So just in case you were worried that we weren't going to have anything to talk about tomorrow, (laughs) we've always got something to talk about, even if it's how we're going to talk to each other across the divides of the day. All right, go out there, do, uh, be good, do good, give glory to God, be a living demonstration of the gospel of grace. Remember always that God loves you and you are an agent of that love in the lives of others. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.